0: discuss the Lata Bilita Sutta, (coughs) which is Sutta number 24 in the Mujimani Nikaya. Now this is a relatively short Sutta, but it is one which has played a very important role within the Pali Buddhist tradition. Since this Sutta develops a scheme of what is called Seven Stages of Purification which forms the kind of framework or outline for the the Visuddhimagga. But what's rather interesting is that this is, I think, the only place in the Pali suttas that this particular scheme of seven purifications occurs. And the scheme of the seven purifications, it is not, in the sutta, it's not actually developed by the Buddha himself but it occurs in a conversation between two monks, sariputta and one venerable Puna-mantaniputta And yet, when, as you'll see, when the two monks are discussing the seven purifications It seems as though they both understand what all of the terminology means almost as though they had heard it from some other place and were familiar with this as a kind of standard way of organizing the Buddha's path. So it's a rather perplexing problem how they can both have a common understanding of the sequence of stages of purification. And yet, there's no place where the Buddha himself actually expounds it. And also, one doesn't see one monk of these two explaining the terms to the other, but rather it seems just as if somehow they both already knew what the terms meant. So perhaps there was some way of organizing the stages of the path that had been already formulated within the Sangha and which was being drawn upon by these two monks. This, I don't know that there's any way to determine how the scheme of seven purifications actually originated. Okay, the Sutta begins when the Buddha is living in Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, they move Then, a number of monks who had spent the rainy season, according to the text, the text uses the expression just in the native land, the commentary, the the expression used is just simply native land, but the commentary adds an explanation that native land here is the Buddha's own native land or the Sakyan Republic. And so these monks who had spent the rainy season, apparently in the Buddha's native land, have now come to Raja to see the Buddha. Then when they arrived, the Buddha asked them, who in the native land, perhaps it's his own native land, <laughs> I don't know actually, is esteemed by the monks there in this way, then the Buddha mentions a set of ten qualities, which are sort of the mark of a perfected monk. Ten qualities which come in... each one comes in a pair, that the monk exemplifies this quality himself, and also teaches this quality to others, that is one who has few wishes, few desires himself. And he also encourages the other monks to be few in their wishes. One who is content himself, secluded himself, one who is aloof from society himself, one who is energetic himself and speaks to the other monks on the importance of arousing energy. So we have here five qualities which are considered worthy qualities in a month. That is being of few wishes, being content with the basic requisites, not being demanding, making excessive requests from lay people, being fond of seclusion, going off into seclusion to devote oneself to the meditation practice, being aloof from society, society in the sense of not fixing at social gatherings whether with lay people or other monks in order to talk about worldly matters, and being energetic, arousing the energy for spiritual development. Okay, those are the five, you say, five important or virtuous qualities, worthy qualities in a month. Then come four or five more qualities which are actually stages in the development of the path. This we have the familiar triad of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. Then we have the goal of wisdom, which is liberation, this would be arhatship. And in the fifth place, we have the knowledge and vision of liberation. This is what happens after the arhant attains arhatship. Then he reviews his practice and his experiences and realizes that he is destroyed all of the defilements. This is what we call jnana dasana, jnana dasana I'm sorry, vimukti dasana, the knowledge and vision of liberation. Okay, so he assesses these five qualities which mark the completion of all of the stages of the path virtue, concentration, wisdom, liberation, and the knowledge of of liberation. And he is also one who speaks about these five stages to the other monks. Okay, so we have now, in addition to the five virtues, the five excellent qualities, the mastery over the five stages, then as the eleventh stage or quality, the Buddha says that he is one who advises, informs, instructs, urges, rouses and encourages his fellows in the holy life. So that is an eleventh quality. The way the Buddha is sort of like set up almost like a kind of outline of the whole training in this question. So it's a quite complicated question. Then the monks reply that there is one venerable Poonamantaniputta who is endowed with these qualities and he is esteemed by the felt by his monks there. The name Poonamantaniputta seems to imply that this monk I think would be a Brahmin because Mantaniputta is a Brahminic surname were originally a Brahmin, perhaps he was from a Brahminic family living in Kapalavattu which was predominantly a Shaktan Republic. Was Mantani Buddha a Brahmin? Of course the um, Angali Mala was also known as Mantani Buddha and he was, according to the text, from a Brahmin, a Brahmin family. Okay, now when this conversation takes place between the Buddha and these visiting monks, Venerable Sariputta is sitting nearby and he hears, overhears this conversation. Then it occurs to Venerable Sariputta that it's a very great, fortunate gain for this monk, Punamantani Buddha, that his companions praise him so highly in the presence of the Blessed One Himself. And then he gives rise to a thought in his mind hopefully, sometime in the future, I myself will have the chance to meet this Venerable Punamantani Putta and have some conversation with him. Obviously, from this passage, Venerable Sariputta had not met. Punamantani Buddha before. Okay, now the Buddha, after staying in Rajagaha for some time, he sets out on tour and eventually arrives in Sabati and goes to stay in Jaita's Grove, Anakapindita's monastery. then it seems (laughs) in those days one didn't really need a postal department, not to speak of computers and fax machines, since wherever the Buddha went, gradually a sort of report would circulate throughout the whole countryside, amongst all of the Buddha's followers, that now the Buddha has moved from such and such a residence to such and such another residence. So when the Buddha settles in Savatthi, then I guess from town to town, from village to village, but perhaps the merchants who were traveling along the trade routes of India, they would carry the word till it reaches, at this point, it would have reached um, the Sakyan Republic. And so Poonamantani Buddha hears that the Buddha is at Savati and since the, the Sakyan Republic is not so far from Savati as Rajkir, Then he decides to make a visit southwards in order to see the the master. And so, traveling by stages, he gradually arrives in Jayta's Grove and goes to the Buddha and pays homage to him, and the Buddha gives him some teaching. Even though Phumamantani Buddha apparently is already in arahant. But still, I guess the Buddha would sometimes give, with discourse and exposition of Dhamma, even to the arhats. In various places in the suttas we see him even giving discourses to Venerable Sariputta, to Mahakasapa, even though they don't need further instruction, but it seems just to reveal certain aspects of Dhamma to them, so that it will be preserved for posterity. Okay. It seems that Venigal Sariputta, even though the text describes this just as a thought that had occurred to Sariputta, that he wanted to meet Puna Poonamantaniputta, but he must have expressed that thought to the other monks, because now when Puna arrives at, at Samadhi, some monks who know Sariputta's wish go to him and tell him, that Puna has arrived at the monastery and they tell him that Puna Puna having received some instruction from the Buddha, is now is now gotten up and he's walking, he's on his way to the blind man's grove. this is the underbana it seems to have been a kind of Grove, which was a short distance, perhaps a few kilometers from the Jaitavana, and while Jaitavana was a very busy and bustling place, because many people would be coming there to see the Buddha, when monks wanted, and even nuns also, wanted to go off for secluded meditation, then they would go to what's called the Blind Men's Grove. It seems there they could meditate very peacefully without any disturbance by people. Okay, so when Venerable Sariputta gets this report, then he becomes quite excited, and he quickly picks up his mat and goes off in the direction of the blindsmen's grove. At a certain point, he catches sight of Puna Mat- Matanipruta walking in the distance ahead of him and he follows behind him. The text says, keeping his head in sight. Perhaps in order to get there, perhaps he had to go through like a little narrow path with a lot of growth, you know, bushes and tall grass. So the upper, the lower part of the body might have been hidden in the grassland but Sariputta would have kept just watch for the head which moving up through the grassland towards the blind blind men's grove Okay then, Venerable Punamantaniputta arrives and he sits down, or lays his mat and sits down in order to pass the day in meditation then Venerable Sariputta reaches the blind men's grove and. Also, he sits down for the day's meditation, but probably not going too deeply into absorption, since he wanted to keep an eye on Punamantani Buddha and not give him a chance to to get away without some conversation. So then when evening falls, and apparently Punamantani Buddha must have emerged from meditation, perhaps he was folding up his mat, preparing to leave. Then the Venerable Sariputta got up from his meditation and came to him and exchanged greetings with him. Then, after the basic greetings, then he asked him, are you living the holy life, the Brahmacharya, under our Blessed One, that is under the Buddha. I think it must have been obvious that they were both Buddhist monks, but this is just the way first of opening the conversation and also Sariputta wants to pick out this idea of leading the holy life as the sort of main nucleus for his the questions that he's going to ask, or we could say the seed from which the questions will develop. So when Punamantaniputta says, yes, I am living the holy life under the Bhagavan Buddha, the blessed one. Then Sariputta asks about the purpose of leading the holy life. And here he uses seven terms which indicate these seven stages. He says, is it for the sake of purification of virtue that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. That is, does one live the holy life just to perfect one's sila, one's morality, one's virtue? And Sariputta, uh, uh, Putta says, no. Then is it for the sake of purification of mind, to purify the mind of the key laces, the entrances through developing concentration that's implied here? Is it for this purpose that one leads the holy life under the Buddha? And Puna answers no friend. Now, I'll just, I won't repeat each question, but just take the terms. Is it for the sake of, we have a series of five terms here, purification of you, for the sake of purification by overcoming doubt, the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of what is path and what is not path? But is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision of the way? Is it for the sake of purification by knowledge and vision that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One? And to each of these questions, Sariputta. Poonamantani Putta answers no. Okay, now since the first question deals with purification of virtue, we can understand quite, it's almost self, it almost is its is self-evident from this, that this question deals with sila, with virtue. Since the term is sila visuddhi, which means purification of virtue. <laughs> the second question, citta visuddhi, that's purification of mind, though it's not fully explicit, but we can readily draw the inference that this is concerned with concentration or samadhi. And there are other suttas which indicate that once purification of mind is spoken of, then concentration is intended. So from this we can infer that the next five questions are dealing with different stages in the um, cultivation of panya, wisdom. And this is also indicated by the terms view, viti, which is in some way concerned with one's outlook, perspective, understanding, and also by the frequent use of the expressions knowledge and vision, jnana dasa. So, in other words, when we take these three, we collapse the seven stages of purification into the three stages of training, sila, samadhi, panya. Then Sariputta, then the Sariputta is asking in effect, does one lead the holy life under the Buddha simply for the sake of practicing the path or perfecting the path? And the question, the answer by um, Venerable Guru Buddha Bhuta indicates quite clearly that one doesn't lead the holy life just for the sake of perfecting the path itself. In fact, since the holy life is made up of the path, it's equivalent to the path, if one lived the holy life, just for perfecting the path, then one would be following the path only for the sake of the path itself. But rather the path exists because it leads to a goal. And it is in order to reach the goal that one develops the path. Therefore, um, Pudhamantani Puta rejects the idea that one leads these, that one fulfills these seven stages of purification merely for the sake of fulfilling them in their own right. Rather, by negating this, this idea he's implying that one fulfills the stages in order to reach the goal. Okay, but when Venerable Poonamantani makes the sevenfold negation, then Sar- Venable Sariputta seems to express some puzzlement. Of course, he really understands the reason, but in order to develop the dialogue, I think he's trying to draw the explanation out from Poonamantani Puta. So in order to do that, he speaks as though he is somewhat puzzled by the other monk's answers so he says when you are asked do we leave the holy life for purification of virtue you say no when you're asked do we leave it for purification of mind and so on up to purification by knowledge and vision then you say no so what is the purpose what is the reason that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One." And then Buddha Puna Mantani, Puna Mantani replies, It is for the sake of final Nibbāna without clinging that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. The Pali expression used here is Anupāda Parinibbāna. Okay, the expression anupāda, parinibbāna, could have two possible meanings, depending on how one takes this expression anupāda. Anupāda is a negation of upāda, which can be identified with upādāna. So if it's identified with with upādāna, then anupāda Would mean the ending of clinging, the abolition of clinging. So then parinibbana can be the living experience of nibbana here and now through the extinction of clinging. But anupada can also mean, I'm sorry, it's anupadana parinibbana. Anupadana parinibana, which is clearly it's a negation of upadana and upadana usually means clinging. So on the first interpretation, Anupadana Parinibbana will be the attainment of nibbana here and now, the living experience of nibbana, through the elimination or abolition of clinging. But the commentary also gives a different meaning of Upadana as a possibility, which is Upadana as a condition for something, because Upadana is a fuel for sustaining condition. So then Anupadana Parinibbana will mean the full quenching, we can say, the ultimate extinguishing of the fires of, you could say, of craving through no further fuel or no more conditions for for craving. It's, this is not here identical with the Anupadi Sesa. It's a, a word from a different root, different meaning. But there's a kind of word play here, which one can't really reproduce it well in English. You see, the word nibbana is literally going out of a fire. It's nirvana, the going out of a fire. And upadana, which also, on the one hand it means clinging But it has the sense of fuel, a fuel which sustains a fire. So, when you take these two alternative meanings, nibbana as the going out of a fire, upadana as the fuel for a fire, then anupadana parinibbana means the complete extinguishing of a fire through lack of fuel. Excuse me?
1: Anupada.
0: Without that. Anupada. The first meaning. The first word before. The first correct. Yeah. Without the. I see, then the commentary must have put in the. the, the, the. Yeah. You have the text. And it's with the, without the, the. Ah, then it's better that way. But anyway, if it's put anupada, then it's really it's a short for anupada. <laughs> okay, so when we translate this expression, we put it sort of <laughs> rather unsatisfactory combined combining Pali with English. for the sake of the final nirvana without clinging but through the exhaustion of clinging that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One Okay, now Sariputta asks questions it seems just to reinforce this point from another angle he asks whether each of these seven stages from purification of virtue on can be equated with final Nibbāna without clinging. And to each of these questions, Pūna Mataniputta answers no. In other words, the path, the stages of the path, cannot be identified with the goal itself. Then Sariputta asks, whether final nirvana without clinging can be attained without these states, independently of these stages. And again, the answer is no. So Puna Pantaniputta is making a rather simple point, <laughs> which somebody of Sariputta's intelligence would have readily grasped. Though he asked the questions, I think, just to reinforce the point and to make it clear for those who are not so sharp-witted as himself. But the main point of the questions is that, on the one hand, the goal is not identical with any stages of the path. On the other hand, one cannot achieve the goal without relying on the If one becomes attached to the path and takes the stages of the path to be the goal, then one doesn't reach the goal. If one tries to reach the goal without following the path, then one can't reach the goal. Okay, so now we're in paragraph 12. Venable Sariputta asks, He says, for each of my questions, you've replied, no. So how are we to make sense out of this apparent paradox that the path itself cannot be identified with the goal, but one can not reach the goal without the path? Then Poonamantaniputta says in paragraph 13, if the Buddha had described purification of virtue as final Nibbana without clinging, he would have described what is still accompanied by clinging as final Nibbana without clinging. And so with the other six, the following six stages. In each case, each of the stages of the path is said to be Saupadana or Saupadana which means that it is in some way accompanied by upadhana, by clinging. Even though these actual stages of practice are means for freeing oneself from clinging, but still there seems to be some kind of very, very subtle clinging that accompanies each of these subtle stages, each of these seven stages. I'm quite I'm not really sure how to understand that in relation even to the seventh stage, the last stage. If we take that to be the higher stage of the path, how could it still be said to be accompanied by filming? sa Upad. excuse me?
1: Yeah. To the drop, Peter, the ride at the Pujah, Nanda O on Charmy. Oh, he must generate at him. See labor bhavya, trial, the road of the punch hole. Chitta, Matanja, Havia, Atapi, Dipper, Biku, the uh, uh, mm. oh, why is he still healing? Destroying all these
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that still doesn't answer my question.
1: I refer to it all the picture of the of the little tail in the round of the famous picture yes. of the bull. Mm-hmm. So a slight philosophical reaction towards that knowledge mm. as a hindrance. Mm. In psychological terms, it would be a remaining small habit of mana which is grasping that particular Mm. liberating force and still clings to a certain degree on that particular thing Mm. which is then becomes Mm. an influence. That is my Mm. idea of me. is final, this is the
0: seventh one, yeah the seventh that, why is that not... It's still it said to be like accompanied, so. yeah, it's still said, still said to be accompanied by clinging. Mm-hmm. It's just not completely clear to me how that is the case. And that, that's Jnana Dasana, that, I, I don't understand clearly what, what is the... I mean, what does that Jnana Dasana, yeah. what, what does that... uh, Yeah, actually I will come to the explanation of the seven stages after we go through the discussion. Perhaps we should sort of shelve the question until we come to that. But I think Venable Sumatra is basically on the right track, that it seems to be a subtle kind of tendency to cling, even when one at the higher stage of the path, till one completely with when reaching the higher stage, then one has the <coughs> instrument for uprooting and destroying all clinging. We find but there still th- could be a subtle tendency to cling to the experiences at that very higher stage.
1: We find similarities in based upon wrong views or materialistic views. We have these what is called as Thitta Dhamma mm-hmm. Nivadavada, you know. There you find also a Experiences of liberation or loss which are took for granted. It would be very simple to find out whether jnana and dasana refers either to the lokia plane, sega plane, or asika plane. And then it would be very clear. But of course, one would have to have a computer to find out because there are so many. So mm-hmm. the expressions with jnana, connecting. So to find out jnana, what it refers to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Whether it's panya for the arahat, panya for the sekha, or an inside
0: knowledge for the buddhigen. Yeah. yeah, I know that we're well, we'll come to that. Maybe let's well, we finish, then I'll sort of. See how these terms are used in the Visuddhimagga. Then I have my own interpretation, which is somewhat different. <laughs> um, okay, anyways, okay, so even the seventh stage, the highest stage of purification, is said still to have some trace of clinging, the upadana. <laughs> and so if the Buddha had said that the seventh stage, it, this purification by knowledge and vision is final nibbana without clinging, then it would mean that something with clinging was final nibbana without clinging, which would be a contradiction. Okay, so that would be impossible or un- unacceptable. On the other hand, if one could achieve final nibbana without clinging, if final nibbana without clinging were attainable without relying upon these seven stages, then any ordinary person would be able to attain final nirvana just without any effort because he wouldn't be necessary to make any effort to reach final nirvana. But rather the point that Venval Puna is trying to make is that the seven stages are the steps Along the way to Nirvana, but not identical with the goal. Then to establish this point, he uses a very wonderful simile. This is a simile of King Pasanadi of Kosala, is living at Sabati, his capital city, and he wants to go to Saketa another city within his kingdom, to take care of some business. And it seems that the two cities must have been some distance apart, so it's not possible to go there just using one coach. But rather there are seven coaches laid out, or seven coaches ready to take him. Perhaps the horses have to rest after going a certain distance, but the sanity is in a hurry, and he can't wait till the horses recover their strength. And so he takes one coach with its horses a certain distance, then he disembarks from his coach and mounts another coach, takes it a further distance. Then he disembarks from the second coach, gets onto the third, and so on, till he gets to the seventh coach. And then he uses the seventh coach to take him to Saketa. And so one cannot say that the city of Saketa is identical with the coaches, and one cannot say that the king reaches Saketa without the coaches, but rather it's by taking these seven coaches, one after another, after another, getting down from one and getting on to the other that he eventually arrives at the city of Saketa. And so in the same way, now we're in paragraph 15, Puna Mantani Puffa says, purification of virtue is for the sake of reaching purification of mind. That is, one develops virtue, sila, in order to establish the foundation for the practices that will purify the mind, the practices that will lead to samadhi or mind which has been purified of the laces, the defilements and the hindrances. One develops purification of view, I'm sorry, purification of mind, in order to reach purification of you, then one develops purification of you to reach the purification by overcoming doubt. Purif- one develops this to reach purification by knowledge and vision of what is path and not path. One develops this to reach purification by knowledge and vision of the way. One develops this in order to reach purification by knowledge and vision and one develops purification by knowledge and vision in order to reach final nirvana without clinging. And it is for the sake of final Nibbana without clinging that the holy life is lived under the Blessed One. In okay, that way we have the seven <coughs> stages as stepping stones for reaching nirvana or we could say to <coughs> remain consistent with the simile, the seven stages are like stage coaches for reaching the vāna. Okay, as to the meaning of these seven stages, first I'll give the Vishuddhi Maka explanation, which is accepted universally in the commentaries in the Theravada tradition. I won't go into full detail, Okay, purification of virtue is identified... The Visuddhi Magga is always thinking in terms of a monastic training. So it identifies purification of virtue with the fourfold purification of virtue for the monks. That is, purification by the the monastic rules, by restraint of the senses, by contentment with the requisites, reflection on the requisites, and by um, purification of livelihood, earning one's living, not by working at a job or by deceiving people, but just accepting what is offered by people in an honest and upright way. The purification of mind, Chitta Visuddhi, is identified with access concentration, and with the eight meditative attainments, the four jhanas, the four formless attainments. Purification of view is taken to be the initial stage in the development of wisdom, where one analyzes one's own personality, one's own personal existence, into the five aggregates, the panchupadana Kanda, and then reduces the five khandas to nama-rupa, to name and form, for mind and matter. Then, purification by overcoming doubt, the commentaries explain as the understanding of conditionality, seeing how these five aggregates for name and form arise through causes and conditions. Okay then, to go from the purification by overcoming doubt, to knowledge and vision of what is path and what is not path, one has to first reflect upon the five aggregates in terms of the three characteristics, impermanent, suffering, and non-self. Then one starts to contemplate one's experience, first bodily, then mental, by way of the arising and passing away of the Sankharis, the formations then they say, the Visuddhimak and the commentary say, while one is contemplating the arising and past super-mundane attainment, maybe one even thinks one is an Arahant, especially because of the bright light, then it becomes very beautiful, and so one thinks one must be a saintly person. And one starts enjoying these experiences, and one becomes attached to them. There's a subtle kind of upadana or clinging to these experiences because they're so blissful, so uplifting, so tranquil, and so sharp and so such extraordinary experiences. But the Visuddhimagga says that when one starts to go undergo these experiences one should be very cautious, and not get deceived by them, but just recognize these are corruptions of insight, and just contemplate them as being impermanent, dukkha, anatta, and let them... And if one succeeds in loosening the attachment to these experiences, if one continues along the track of insight contemplation and doesn't fall into any delusions and any conceit because of one's experiences, then one has successfully distinguished the wrong path from the right path. So the wrong path is the path of attachment to these corruptions of insight and overestimating oneself because of these experiences while the right path is recognizing the corruptions of insight as only temporary experiences and relinquishing the attachment to them continuing simply with the track of Anicca, Dukkha, and I. all of these experiences are impermanent unsatisfactory or insecure, and not self. Then when one bypasses that particular hurdle, then one enters into the deeper stages of insight, where the insight knowledges start to unfold in succession. That is the purification by knowledge and vision of the way. A deep and as one takes the insight knowledges all the way to the highest point, then one reaches eventually the super mundane path. That is purification by knowledge and vision. So the purification by knowledge and vision begins with the path of stream entry. Okay then after the path and fruit of stream entry, then one comes back to the normal consciousness. Then one again goes through the knowledge and vision of the way, till one comes to the second path and fruit, which is also purification by knowledge and vision. And so on, till one comes to the fourth and final path, which is the path of our hardship. Okay, that's the way of explanation, which is a long span, which has long been accepted in the Theravada tradition, and it's very much the standard way of explanation. So if you ask any learned monks about the seven purifications, they'll explain exactly <laughs> according to the Visuddhimaka. But I have, I can't say, it, another interpretation... I would say that I would challenge the Visuddhimaka interpretation But I wonder whether the seven stages could be looked at in a different way. This is the way I would look at them. Okay, purification of virtue, the same, except I wouldn't confine it to a monastic um, observance of Sira. Okay, purification of mind, could be the same as the Visuddhi, Magha method. But purification of you, I would think might be interpreted as the achievement of the purified view immediately preceding the attainment of stream entry, because the stream enterer comes out with, purific- with a purified view. After reaching stream entry, what well when reaching stream entry, one eliminates saccaya ditti, personality view and all wrong views. And so one cuts off all wrong views with the attainment of stream entry. So it seems purification of view might be interpreted as covering all the stages of insight up to stream entry. Okay, then the stream enterer overcomes doubt. He eliminates doubt. Doubt is the second fetter. Correct. So, the purification by overcoming doubt might be taken as the actual attainment of stream-entry. Okay, next... When one reaches stream-entry, then one has a definite (coughs) knowledge what is the wrong path, what is the right path. So the stream-enter actually acquires as factors of his own personality, so to speak, The factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path becomes built into his own mental continuum, so to speak. And so the Stream Enterer can never go on the wrong path, even if he's lazy and negligent. When he starts to practice, he will develop the right path. So that is the discriminating knowledge of what is the wrong path and the right path. Okay, then the purification by knowledge and vision of the way, that could be the practice undertaken by the stream enterer up to the attainment of the stage just before arhatship. And then the actual path immediately leading to arhatship would be purification by knowledge and vision. So that is an alternative way to look at the seven purifications. What do you think?
1: I think when it comes to doubts, yeah. I think even when there is a stream enter, it takes a little time to discern doubts which are caused by mental disturbances, hindrances, and doubts which are ethical, religious mm-hmm. doubts regarding the, the and... Yeah, that uh, those kind of doubts is yeah, open, uh, know, eliminated, eliminated by the Eliminated, sure. but, uh, but other doubts maybe would have another name in English, we would call them perplexities.
0: I think in the Pali that would not even be perplexity. That would be, because the word translated perplexity, kanka, or... katan, uh, those are also eliminated by the stream mentor.
1: Yeah, but when the, the stream mentor is not free from the five
0: hindrances, only Actually, he, he, a, he, only would, he would be free from doubt. The stream mentor wouldn't have that is true,
1: them. that is true. He's free from doubt, but when, the, when he is. When Having anger yeah. or this or yeah. that in that moment there will be also doubts. Otherwise that moment would not arise.
0: I don't think that there will be the kind of religious or philosophical doubts in the stream of No, that is
1: definitely not there. Yeah. But perplexity or doubts yeah. will yeah. arise if there is karma chanta viapata tina mita or dati ok
0: about mundane matters there should be doubts. But I couldn't <coughs> be doubt about Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and the Training.
1: Yes, but mundane matters and doubts are mostly connected with the influence Otherwise, they would be uh, mm. transcendent. Mm. For me, I always have a little difficulty be, be to discern between doubts and perplexity. Mm. Because doubts also have uh, the nature of perplexity. No.
0: Okay, but doubt. Perplexity, those are two English language words, but they could represent in Pali Vichikicha and Kanka. And both Vichikicha and Kanka are virtually synonymous, and they're both eliminated by the stream Regarding the <coughs> two yeah. uh,
1: regarding uh, certain aspects, once all behaviour, there is doubt, probably, no. which you would call kam... what do you call that? Kanker. Kanker? Yeah. Because that is a question of uh, no. English and no. Parley. Because the dialectic is, is always a little difficult uh, for instance, the sun is yellow. Butterflies are yellow. Teddy bears are yellow. But not all yellow is a teddy bear.
0: What do you think about this? i afraid to get branded as a heretic. <laughs> called up before the inquisition. <laughs> okay, anyway, this is just an alternative idea, a way of interpreting the seven stages that occurred. But one need not take it too seriously. Okay, so after this explanation by Puna Mantani one has to bear in mind now that the monks, the two monks in carrying on this conversation have not yet identified each other, even though Venerable Sariputta knows that this is Poonamantaniputta but Pune doesn't know who the visiting monk is, who his interrogator is. So, but Venerable Sariputta for the sake of a kind of politeness, you know, just to now to carry the conversation to a conclusion to reveal his own identity. He asks, what is your name and how do your fellow monks speak of you? Then he says, my name is Puna and I am known as Mantani Puta. That's the family name of Mantani Puta. Then uh, Sariputta says, it is wonderful, it is marvelous that each of these profound questions has been answered point, point by point by the venerable Poonamantaniputta as a learned disciple who understands the teacher's dispensation correctly. Then he goes on phrasing how much of a gain it is for Poonamantaniputta. Then now Poonamantaniputta is due to us. About his interrogator's identity. So he says, What is the Venerable One's name, and how do your fellow monks know you? And he says, My name is Upatisa, friend, and my companions in the holy life know me as Sariputta. And of course, Pune would have heard of Sariputta many, many times, but he had never met him before. In those days they didn't have photographs so he couldn't have seen a photo of him. So now this is the first time that he's actually seeing Venerable Sariputta and has recognized him in the flesh. And so he says, now he's almost a little embarrassed, he says, we didn't know that we were talking to the Venerable Sariputta, the disciple who is just like the Buddha himself. If I had known that this was the Venerable Sariputta, I would not have spoken so much. And he says, it is wonderful, it is marvelous how you have posed all of these profound questions. And he continues praising Venerable Sariputta. And in this way these two great Mahanagas, the expression is used, the Naga is A giant elephant, a bull elephant, or a giant serpent, a dragon. But it's also, the word is also used as a kind of epithet for an arahant. And so the text says, it was in this way that these two great beings, these two Mahanagas, rejoiced in each other's good words. Okay, that's the seven stages. Any questions or comments?
1: I think the I to like and you think that's how i not like I don't...
0: I mean upadana means that these states are said to be with clinging because one is still in the physical body. Is that the point? Yeah. Whereas upadap the anupadana Nibbana is without the physical body. I'm not sure that's the intention here. I would tend to go that, to take it that to go with the interpretation of upadana here is predominantly the clinging that there's some. Even though these highest stages of knowledge and vision are actually the means to eliminate clinging, but still they are to some degree subject to clinging, that one be, could become attached to them and cling to them. But with Nibbana itself, there can be no more clinging. That's the way I would understand it. In
1: terms of just the fact of the, the actual conversation, this story has been brought back to the Buddha and that would have as discourse or obviously? Or it's actually
0: not possible to determine that. There are some suttas or, which take the form of conversations in which which are eventually reported back to the Buddha. Then the Buddha says, if I had been asked such and such questions, I would have answered in exactly the same way. And those Suttas are said to be discourses of the Buddha. But this one, we don't have that uh, ending. So this could have been just a conversation which was you know, reported to the monks and then incorporated into the canon. But again, I have to say that it's an interesting problem and one that seems insoluble. How the two, apparently... Are understand the meaning of these seven stages especially with terms that don't occur elsewhere in the canon, yet one doesn't find a clear explanation of them anywhere else. It's almost as though there's some kind of implicit explanatory scheme which both have access to but which has not been preserved in the canon. Okay. It's somewhat late, later than usual, so we'll stop. And then next week we take the next sutta, which will be Chakha Sutta, number 148. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.